Thanks for joining us today. If you have any questions, please email us at info at If you would like to support this ministry financially, visit us at capitalchristian.com and click the Give button in the top right corner. Well, I'm excited you made, made it here today. If you uh, can give me just a few minutes, I'm lying. Can you give me two hours? All right, just I, I promise if this is your first time, we won't, we'll try not to go long. I do have a clock, and I've never, never been able to get my message under that time that they've set for me, which I've actually set for myself. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm going to do my very best today. If this is your first time, or maybe you've been coming for a while, and uh, maybe you're uncomfortable with like Holy Spirit talk, or maybe you've uh, had bad experiences with, with the Holy Spirit, uh, I promise you this is, I don't really like this way of talking about it, but I, this is a safe place. And I think we got genuine people that are not weird. And uh, we are uh, today, and maybe over the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about the church, also the Holy Spirit. But uh, specifically today, we are going to be talking about the Holy Spirit. And for a few minutes, we're going to be talking about speaking in tongues. So I'm going to get the cat out of the bag. I do speak in tongues. I, I, not, no, you don't have to. Stop it. Stop it. Um, let, let me just say this. If, if I'm weird, it's not because I'm filled with the Spirit. Um, if I'm weird, it's because I'm a Dallas Cowboy fan, okay? Um, I, and I get it. I, I think maybe some of you are thinking, oh, 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 here we go. This is one of those churches, right? We talk about the Spirit and uh, where the fire tunnels and, you know, where's the, where the snakes, uh, where's uh, the drinking of the poison, where are the cats, we're going to sacrifice cats. I promise we're not going to sacrifice cats. Kind of thought of, no, I have not. Um, but uh, I, I do believe people get weird, and uh, I promise we're not going to get weird uh, when it comes to talk about the Holy Spirit and his role in our life. Again, if Christians get weird uh, with the Holy Spirit, that's not the Holy Spirit. That's something else. And uh, so I, I, I want you to know from the outset, uh, we're a place where we, we man, we, we honor each other and uh, we believe in uh, serving and loving each other and being faithful to the Scripture. We have a high view of Scripture here, and I'm going to do my best to talk about that. So if you brought your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, give your, give your neighbor another high five. Tell them that you, you love them. How many huggers do we have here today? Any huggers? We got a few huggers. All right, go hug your neighbor. Just do it right now. Hug, hug them, hug them, hug them. Jeff, I know you're a hugger. <laughs> Kidding. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. So we're talking about the Pentecost. It says when the day of Pentecost, we uh, discussed this last week, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire, everyone say fire, appeared to them and rested on each one of them. So this is not Coachella, this is not the Biebs and Beyonce and fire machines. Are there fire machines? Uh, no, I don't know, if they're like smoke machines. This has nothing to do with that. Um, this is what Luke is telling us, Dr. Luke, is that the presence of God is now flooding creation itself. So many of us, when we, when we talk about the Spirit, we read about the Pentecost, uh, we, we kind of treat it like stranger things, 
right? It's something just, it's otherworldly. It's, it's out of this space-time world, and we try to get our head around it, and some of us freak out. Don't freak out. What Luke is telling us is with the smoke and with the fire and with the wind, God is now flooding creation with his very presence, the creation story, the story of God's people is now coming to a, a dramatic moment. And now this is an age uh, defined and shaped by Jesus and the Spirit. We don't live, as we talked about it last week, just to refresh your memory, we do not live in the age of Kanye. We do not live in the age of LeBron, and I love LeBron, right? We do not live in the age of Western-style democracy. We do not live in the age of modern progressivism. We do not live in the age of Netflix and Apple TV. And those, those are great things. Some of those are great things, right? We do not live in the age of laissez-faire economics or technological advances. We live in the age still of Jesus and the Spirit. So when you think of Pentecost, you have to think of, like Shakespeare. I love, how many of you love Shakespeare, right? Two of you love Shakespeare. Now is, as he said, now is um, um, the, the winter of my discontent made glorious summer. And uh, what Shakespeare is talking about is this universal joy of something brand new that's happening. And this is what we see in uh, Pentecost. God now is with his people. Uh, again, this isn't Coachella or whatever. This is the presence of God filling his people. And let me just say this really quick. We talked about it last week. Um, yes, we, we identify, maybe some of you as being a Pentecostal, some of you identify as being a charismatic or an Anglican or Episcopalian, uh, or maybe you're neo-reformed or you're, maybe you're a little bit Wesleyan. And maybe we all come from on the continuum of theological backgrounds. We all come from different places, whatever. I get that. But biblically speaking, we have to identify ourselves as now being little temples, little walking temples. And temples in the ancient Near East, just to refresh your memory, are places where heaven and earth intersect. They come together, they collide. And so you got to stop thinking, yourself, thinking of yourself as less than. you got to think of yourself according to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You're not your own, okay? So we have all these labels. We live in the age of labels, right? We live in the age of I, I, identity politics and intersection, intersectional, intersectional ways of thinking about what it means to be human. And there's some good things and there's some bad things about that. I just want to say when it really comes down to it, you are, if you are in Christ, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. That means heaven and earth intersects in your life. Can I get an amen to that? That's some powerful stuff that's hard to get our mind around, but it's important that we think that way. And so divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. We come to verse 4. And they were all filled. Everyone say filled. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at the sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging uh, to Cyrene and, his vi and visitors from Rome. Both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this 
mean? With a show of hands, how many of you read Acts 2 and have asked yourself that question? What does this mean? But others mocking, verse 13, Dr. Luke continues, said they are filled with new wine. It's funny, let me just, before I pray and, and get into uh, this little, little teaching this morning, um, it's funny, when, when I've told people growing up that I spoke in tongues, I, I've been mocked by fellow Christians. Um, we've, and, and, and to be frank this morning, I have been, our church has been mocked um, by other universities, uh, been mocked by other churches, and I, as a young man, I don't know, how many, do we have any redheads here? Okay, a few redheads. Um, I remember, yeah, we, we have tempers, okay? So you don't want to mess with, with a redhead. Uh, and I remember I really struggled with some of the caricature of, uh, of a spirit-filled church. And I'm going to talk about how I kind of disagree with, on, on a level of language with that kind of moniker of, of our church. Um, I, I don't really believe in spirit-filled Christians. I believe Christianity is learning to be spirit-filled or to be filled with God's spirit. And so, um, I, we, yes, this is... I'll be honest with you, I've been reticent to talk about this because of how people get weird about this, but I promise I'm not going to get weird about this. I do feel like I need to talk to you about this subject, the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues today. Really quick, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. So what is speaking in tongues? And then I'm going to pray and uh, we'll, we'll get into uh, the teaching here. Uh, let me just say this from the beginning. What we see here uh, as God fills 120 uh, disciples with his presence, and they begin to speak in different languages. Uh, this is, you got to think of it biblically, as a reversal of Babel. We find in Genesis chapter 11, the story of Babel, if you're not familiar with it, is this um, story of arrogance. It's this project of self-aggrandizement. It's uh, a group, a civilization in the ancient world who got together. They wanted to make a name for themselves, independent of God, so they build a tower. God knows they, they forced conformity. Um, a false or a parody of unity. And so you have this human civilization built on the premise of pride and self-aggrandizement. They're building a tower. God, because they know that, he knows that they're unified, has to come down and confuse their languages. So he confuses their languages and they, they spread. What we have here in Acts chapter 2 is now the presence of God as a fulfillment of a dramatic story that we find in the Old Testament is now all coming together. It's all rushing forward into the present. And now we have God himself by his spirit overturning the radical dislocation that we find in, in creation itself and between nations. So it's funny to me that what you see in Acts chapter 2 is that the disciples are all together in one place and now they're going to the nations and speaking the good news. The idea is that Pentecost is all about not division, it's about reconciliation, and yet, it's funny how like forces in our world want to parody Pentecost in the spirit and use it as a divisive thing and separate the body of Christ. No, being filled with God's spirit is not intended to be a divisive thing. It's intended to be all about how God reconciles us to him, creation, uh, earth, that's our space, with God's space, and to reconcile people groups and ethnicities. Can I get an amen to that? 
So that is the heart of what Pentecost is all about. And at this point, I want to pray. I've talked too much. I want you to bow your heads, close your eyes. Father, I thank you for your grace. I thank you that you're here uh, this morning. And we just welcome you uh, in this place. Holy Spirit, come in the next uh, 20 minutes and speak to us. Give me your wisdom. In your name we pray. And everyone said, amen. Uh, this last week, I went to uh, Rite Aid with, with my boys. And we were having a really good time. And uh, we're just running some errands. There are some days. How many parents do we have here? Okay, we got a few parents. Uh, uh, there are some days when it feels like I have three kids. But there are some days when you're really tired, it feels like you have 13 kids. So I remember running this errand, having a great day, but was, I was like, I was low. I was getting pretty close to empty. Uh, my boys, they never run out of energy. And uh, so we went into Rite Aid, and uh, I remember Q, he, was, he loves books. How many love to read? Readers are leaders. And so he, he, he was fixed, fixed on this, I, I can't remember what book it was, uh, but he wasn't really paying attention to me. So I, I, uh, I had to go do something else, and so I took Wesley with me before I... I left my son. I didn't actually leave him. There was like two aisles over um, before I went to, the, um, uh, to a different part of the store. I remember I looked over to Wesley, gave him some instructions, said, hey, son, I just want to let you know that I'm going to be two aisles over. So don't worry about it. I can see you where I'm at. Uh, you can just stay and, and look at this book. So I take my son, Wesley, and we go to the other side of, of this aisle, two, two aisles down, and probably about a minute goes by, and I'm picking stuff up, and, and Wesley's punching me in the, you know, in the stomach. That's just what he does. You know, he, it's, his, it's his love language, right? How many punchers do we have here? And you like to say, that's your love language. That was a little tone deaf. Don't punch. Can I get an amen? We don't believe in punching unless you're a kid and you punch your dad, okay? Uh, but we love to wrestle, and so he was just kind of like messing around. And all of a sudden, I'm not joking, my son, Quincy, is a leader, and he is loud. And uh, I hear, and it kind of just, it shook me, it shook the whole, the whole store. All I hear is, Dad! And then he said it over and over and over. I mean, it was just like, he just had a loud voice. And uh, I remember thinking, whose son is that, right? I mean, aisle nine, we got a problem, kid. Son, let's get out of here. Um, and I remember he, and he came around the corner, and he had those big crocodile tears. And I remember looking at him, and with accusation in his tone, he goes, Dad, why, why did you leave me? And then I just sit down and explain to him, son, I give you instructions that I, I could see you, and I was just right over here. And you know, it was one of those connecting moments that I had with my son. It, you know, I, my heart went out towards him, but inside I was kind of like glad about it because at least I knew he loves me, right? And he needs me. There's some days I don't know, right? And uh, and I remember thinking, and he just and we, we prayed together. And he's like, Dad, I thought that you left me and you went somewhere else. And he, he was obviously really upset about that. So I've been thinking about that story, and I can't shake it. And I feel like in a way, it's kind of like, just go with me. Uh, it's kind of like a parable of how people think about God. That we, we've, in many ways, we've bought into this God as an absentee landlord theology. 
that God is somewhere out in the cosmos. And we talk about this all the time, right? Like, like heaven is like God's space, which is like three trillion miles straight up in, in the sky. And that's not what we see in the Bible. In the Bible, heaven overlaps with earth. God is present. But it seems like, and I'm going to be frank this morning, it seems like there are some people in the church that are okay with God's absence. And I'm talking on the level of experience. Now, let me just say this really quick. How many of you know, and we teach this all the time, we don't live by the feels. Like Martin Luther, 500 years ago, he was suffering through melancholy and sadness and sometimes depression. Uh, one of the greatest reformers, right? He, uh, he quoted, and I, uh, he wrote, and I, I quote him, uh, that feelings come and feelings go, and feelings can be deceiving. But one thing that I do is I stake my life, not on my experience, but on the Word of God. Not on my circumstances, but on the Word of God. Not on my problems, but on the Word of God. Not on my issues or my psychological state, but on God's Word. So we don't live by our experiences. We don't live by the feels. We don't live by our subjective states, right? Can I get any man? Have you ever tried to manipulate your feels? It's like, hurting, it's like hurting a bunch of cats, right? And I don't know who invented cats. It wasn't God. Like, I think they're a little bit demonic. Anyways, like they just, yeah, you can't. Ah. We had, and you know this, we had four cats at one time. We were the cat people. It's all because of my wife. She just loves stray animals. Anyways, I've developed an antipathy towards that little creature. Um, but uh, it's, many people, their lives are defined on the level of experience, and I'm talking Monday through Saturday, as God being absent. I think some of it, I've diagnosed the problem. Are you still with me? I think first, one of the reasons, or maybe one of the more dominant reasons, is that we are, and this is fancy talk, please forgive me, but we are therapeutic materialists, meaning that we... Uh, <laughs> Uh, we are a raging uh, materialist who really our lives are defined by um, the material world, by stuff. Um, and because we have access, we live in a great country. Can I get any man to that? That has its problems. Can I get any man to that as well? Um, but we live in a country with all these te technological advances. Uh, we have access to healthcare and a modern medicine, and uh, we have Netflix and we have Mickey D's. Come on. How many of you love their cheeseburgers? I'm a cheeseburger connoisseur, but I don't know what they put in those cheeseburgers. They put chemicals in it, it's addictive. Those cheeseburgers, they've changed sort of my life. But let me, let me tell you, it's funny how, man, when I'm, when I'm in the dumps, and I, we can be honest here this morning, and, and I've, this has been my experience in the past, and this, I've, I've been in ministry for 20 years, and I've counseled a lot of people on this thing, that we're, when we're going through something, um, the American dream we know cannot deliver on its promise, but it can give you a little bit. It can give you enough to get you through the day. And so if we're not careful, we buy into this like therapeutic, materialist worldview where we get access to some therapy on Netflix or some therapy called Mickey D's Cheeseburger, and we go to McDonald's when we're sad, when we should probably be going to God and listening to him and opening up our hearts. And so we get a fix 
And if we're not careful as American Christians, we can go from one fix to the next, swaging whatever is going on inside of us without really going to God and opening up our heart to him. I think that's, I think that's a problem that a lot, of, a lot of Christians in the church have. But I think the biggest problem is uh, um, this 19th century uh, worldview that we call cessationism. Cessationism and its legacy has infiltrated the church, particularly in North America. And if you're not familiar with this, it's important. I'm going to nerd out on you just for a little bit. Is that okay? Um, But cessationism is this theological uh, worldview that states that all the manifestations on the level of experience, all the manifestations of the spirit that we find in Scripture itself, uh, speaking in tongues, healing, miracles, uh, wisdom gifts, uh, words of discernment, knowledge. You find this in 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14. All of them have what? Ceased. They're no longer a, a, a valid um, exercise or experience for the Christian, right? And, I, and cessationists, I get it. There's some things, there's some really good things. I have a lot of cessationist friends, and there's some good things that they can bring to the theological table. The problem is, and I'm not going to get into this, they've colluded with this Epicurean view of how our world works. God's upstairs, and he really doesn't care about what's happening in our world. And uh, I say this all the time. Just go with me. I hope I get a laugh on this. Homie, don't play that. Right? Jesus, that's not, the Bible doesn't play that. We don't believe in God, and many pastors and scholars say this all the time, we don't believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Bible. We have a high view of Scripture, but we believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, who is at work in our lives today. So usually cessationists will quote, and I just want to read the Scripture just so you kind of get an idea of what they talk about. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, it reads, Paul is uh, writing to the church in Corinth. It's a cosmopolitan city. It's kind of like Vegas. How many of you like Vegas? Okay. (laughs) Everyone loves Vegas. No one knew how to answer that question. All right. The devil is a liar. Okay. (laughs) For in one spirit, or excuse me, go to 1 Corinthians um, Chapter 13, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, thank you, verse 8. Uh, this, Paul, as, as I mentioned, is, is speaking to the church in Corinth. There's some disorder. There's some uh, misdirection of the gifts. And so Paul wants to talk about love. So he goes, love never ends. How many of you believe in love? Okay. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, how many of you believe in prophecies? Okay. How many believe in tongues? Okay, some of you are unsure. That's okay. You don't have to raise your hand. They will cease. As for knowledge, how many believe in knowledge and learning? Reading your Bible, right? Okay, we all believe in that. It will also pass away. Verse 9, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Make note of that, when the perfect comes. Other translations will say when um, all things are complete. That's kind of my rough translation of several different translations, or my paraphrase. 
And then Paul continues in verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Face to face. Can't wait to see Jesus face to face. We see in a mirror dimly, but there will be a time when we will see Jesus face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So cessationists will take this, and they're right on one level. They'll say, yes, there will be one day when uh, prophecy, and they just, they, they become reductionistic, where prophecy in tongues will cease. And they interpret verse 9 and 10 as the perfect that will come as the closing of the canon of Scripture. Clearly, Paul is not talking about the closing of Scripture or the canon of Scripture. What Paul is talking about in verse 9 and 10, when the perfect comes, that's not when we get the Holy Scripture. That is when uh, the life of the age to come, promised by Jesus, arrives. That's when we have new heavens and new earth and resurrected bodies. Can I get an amen to that? When God heals every tear, God transforms the entire space-time universe, flips it right side up, and heals it and makes all things new. At that moment, when you're in new heavens and new earth, you're not going to have to go around and prophesy to everybody. We don't need it. Right? Um, you're not going to have to go around and speak in tongues. We, we, we have all the knowledge that we need. And what Paul is actually saying in 1 Corinthians 13, this list of, of tongues and prophecy and knowledge, it's not a language game that he's playing. It's representative of all the gifts. We won't need to evangelize anybody anymore in new heavens, new earth. We're not going to have to go on the street corner, right, and say, hey, brother so-and-so, you need Jesus. You don't need to evangelize. We don't need the gifts of healing. You don't need words of wisdom, words of knowledge, because we are fully known by God himself. It's important that we understand that. Uh, number one, uh, the perfect time refers to, as I mentioned, uh, new heavens, new earth. Number two, cessationists still believe that knowledge is important. But Paul says, hey, guys, um, Tongues and prophecy and knowledge will no longer be needed. The point is, uh, if the closing of the canon was a sign of the perfect coming, then sensationists would have to agree that we no longer need use of knowledge anymore. But how many of you know we need knowledge? We need learning. Uh, we need to grow in the Spirit. Let me just say this, my, my, and I get this from several different scholars. The problem with cessationism is that it is a self-fulfilling prophecy. Meaning, if you believe that the manifestations of God's spirit, which are not arbitrary things, they're not meant to make us eccentric, they're not meant for just our spiritual experience, wind and fire and speaking in tongues and healing and all the manifestations of the spirit are designed to show us that God is with us, that heaven and earth overlap, that God is restoring to us what it means to be human. He's restoring his image in us. But if you believe, 
You believe that the gifts and the manifestations of the Spirit have ceased. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you don't believe it, you probably won't see it. I remember, I, I didn't mention this first service, but I was convinced that meatloaf was buffalo until I was 18 years old. It's the weirdest thing. I don't know, my knowledge, right? My belief was that meatloaf was just like buffalo. And so I remember my mom would like make meatloaf and I would refuse meatloaf because I just assumed that it was buffalo. I had a belief that kept me from eating meatloaf because I thought it was buffalo, right? I know it's weird, but the point is it just simply illustrates how I think many people feel about the manifestations of the Spirit when they work from a belief system or assumption that all the gifts have ceased. If you believe that they ceased, then you're probably not going to operate in those gifts at all. So what does Scripture talk about when it, it comes to our life before God? We find this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and I want to read verse 13. It's just, a, it's a little verse. I would love to take time because I know you want this, and I want it too, but uh, we got children screaming, right, in the, in outside, uh, probably my kids, okay? And, uh, but, uh, so we got we to gotta get this train going. I, and we love, how many of you love our children workers and our kids pastors? They're amazing. So I want to respect their time. Uh, so... Paul says this, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, a body. I love the language of this. We were baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all. Turn to your neighbor and say all. And all were made to drink. Everyone say drink. And all were made to drink of one spirit. Baptize. I love the language. It's evocative. You were made to drink of one spirit. The Greek word for baptize is baptizo, and it simply means to be completely immersed. Uh, it's actually, there's a, I love this word picture. In the ancient world, uh, it also was associated with um, a ship being submerged in the watery depths of the ocean. I love how evocative that is. So baptizo means not just some of your life, is immersed, but all of your life is immersed in King Jesus and in the Spirit when you make a decision to follow Jesus. And all were made to drink of one Spirit, imbibe, right? Uh, the idea to drink uh, is to irrigate. It, it, think of uh, a hot summer day and you get some lemonade. How many of you love this? right, and you're sweating, you've been working hard, and you get that lemonade, and you drink uh, on that 100-degree uh, day, uh, and you feel that refreshment um, to drink and to be baptized. There are other metaphors that describe throughout the New Testament our life before God. You're going to be clothed with power, uh, and there's much that we could talk about that. Uh, you're going to be immersed. You're going to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the way that we should describe our life uh, or our lives to be shaped by is baptizo, or to drink, or to be clothed. That represents, if you're in Christ, your life before God. Our lives as Christians should not be defined or shaped by an absentee landlord deity. 
But here's the problem. Some of you probably have a theological um, charismatic point of view that means that you believe that the gifts of the Spirit are still valid for today. But I still think because of the legacy of cessationism and maybe with a little bit of therapeutic materialist kind of creeping into the church, we, um, we are functionally, and I adopt this or borrow this from one pastor, we're functionally cessationists. I feel like a lot of people in the church believe, in other words, that on Sunday we can have maybe um, a little experience with God, but Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, God's absent. Right, Saturday's for football, so is Sunday, but we come to church on Sunday, right? We don't worship the Seahawks. We don't worship the Raiders. Can I get an amen? Wow, okay. Um, we come on Sunday, right, and we have an encounter with Jesus, but some of us, we don't even realize, we just kind of assume that the Spirit is just relegated to two hours or an hour and a half on Sunday, when God is present Monday and Tuesday, what about Wednesday? Yes, Wednesday. Thursday? Yes, Thursday. Friday? Yes. Saturday? He might take a little break to watch college football and drink Diet Pepsi, okay? <laughs> totally kidding. But Saturday, yes, God is present in our life. He's present at your place of work. He's present at your home. He's present in your neighborhood. He's present at your grocery store. He's present at Starbucks. He's present in the North End with all our lovely vegans, right? He's present with those who drive Subarus. He's present in the Treasure Valley. God is present. And yet I do think we've in many, and I think this is more unintentional for, for many of us, but we, we collude with this cessationist theology of, okay, I'll get some of God on Sunday, but um, God's kind of relegated to Sunday. And uh, we don't believe that's true at all. Let me just say this really quick. Pentecost means in the language of one New Testament scholar. Can I just say this really quick? Uh, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. It means the spirit has been given to make the future real in the present. It's learning, and these are my words, it's learning to live by God's future world in the present. I want you to think of Isaiah chapter 11 and vegetarian lions, right? I want you to think of Amos chapter 5, verse 20, I think it's verse 24, where justice rolls down and righteousness rolls down like a river. All of those passages were about the future, and in the giving of the Spirit, the future has now arrived. So we got to learn to think or base our lives on where the future or where history is going. We don't base our lives on our immediate circumstances. I kind of feel like a Pentecostal preacher right now. We don't base our lives on how we feel. We don't base our lives on that diagnosis. We don't base our lives on opinions. We don't base our lives on um, problems or things we can't make sense of. We base our lives on the future. We are people from the future. We're future people, right? And it's in our lives that we anticipate what God will eventually do to creation, heal it, and make it whole again. God wants to make your life whole. And the way we do that is we live from the future. Number two, the Holy Spirit is given as a down payment or a guarantee. The Greek word for down payment or guarantee simply means an engagement ring. An engagement ring, we all know, is a sign in the present of what will happen in the future. God gives us the Holy Spirit. God gives us the gift of speaking in tongues. I said it. 
God gives us healing gifts. God gives us knowledge gifts and wisdom gifts as a sign, not an arbitrary sign of like eccentric things that happen so we can tell everybody that we're super powerful like X-Men, right? Or like Iron Man. No, these are signs that heaven and earth have come together. Number three, the Holy Spirit's given to bring heaven and earth together. I talk about this a lot. We are living, walking temples. First Corinthians chapter three, Paul says that we are temples of the Holy Spirit. We don't own our bodies. You don't own your money, you don't own your bodies, you don't own your mind, you don't own your psychological state, you don't own your stuff, you don't own anything. You are a temple if you are in Christ and have made a decision to follow Jesus. Evangelical speak is you got saved, and if you're saved, you are a temple that God wants to dwell and fill and heal and make whole. Should I get more amens? so that you could reflect God's wisdom and grace back to this world. And number four, uh, the Holy Spirit is given to empower us as Christians for mission. We're not given manifestations of the Spirit so we can just have like a game of wacko stuff, right? I don't, my dad, that was his words. Uh, crazy stuff. We could just like engage in spiritual experiences for their own sake. I don't believe that. We're given the Holy Spirit, the wind, the fire, the gifts of the Spirit, so we're empowered in mission. This is related in the words of N.C. Wright. This is related to beauty. Some of you have a gift to, to make art. Some of you can draw. Some of you are poets. Some of you are writers. Uh, God has given you the Spirit so you can use these beauty gifts to transform the world. God has given us the Spirit so we can live in holiness. We believe in holiness. We do not believe you can do whatever you want with your body. We believe what you do with your body is a direct reflection of, of how you think uh, about who Jesus is and who you really are in Christ. Given the power to be who God's called us to be through the Spirit. We work for justice. We work for relationships. We work for spirituality um, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Spirit. So, how do we practically um, enter into what only God can do for us? In the words of Dallas Willard, how, how do we flesh out um, a more charismatic way of life without the fire tunnels and the shofars and the crazy stuff? Okay, and if, if you like that, that's great. Okay. Um, some of you love that, and we'll pray for you. All right, anyways, we'll move on. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul gives us some practical advice about how to um, walk in the Spirit. He's talking to the church in Corinth in uh, chapter 14, and uh, he's bringing order. We believe God's not the author of confusion, but of peace. And that specifically is talking about order in the church. There's just some things we don't, think are appropriate uh, in public. Amen? And I'm going to talk about the distinction between private and public here pretty soon. But Paul writes in chapter 14 to a church that loves Jesus, but they're out of order. So he wants to bring them back again. Can I say this? I don't think I mentioned this, uh, this service. Some of you are really scared about spirit talk because you had a bad experience in church. I get that. I remember a long time ago, it was about, about 20 years ago, I went to a restaurant, actually it wasn't a restaurant, it was a fast food place, I won't name it, 
uh, Sonic. Um, sorry. <laughs> I had a hot dog, and I've never been back again. Now, it took me a couple years to start eating hot dogs again, right? I haven't been back to Sonic, right? And I'm sure they're great, right? And if you work at Sonic, please forgive me, okay? It's probably a bad hot dog. But uh, my relationship with Sonic was dramatically different post hoc. I got really, really sick. Well, I had a decision to make. I, was I going to allow one bad experience with a hot dog keep me from some really good stinking experiences with hot dogs? Can I get an amen? Chicago style, right? Go to Freddy's and get a Chicago style hot dog. It will change your life today, okay? Um, many people kind of do the same thing with the spirit. They had a bad experience with some crazies or a weird experience at church and they, they said, I'm, I, this is not me. I'm not gonna deal with anything with the spirit. No, 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 no. If you're spirit filled, that's not gonna make you weird. Something else is making those people weird. Being filled in this, with the spirit is to truly be who God's called you to be. To be fully alive, fully reverent, fully human fully in love with God's people and people who are on the outside. And Paul writes in uh, verse one, pursue love. If, if you're serious, essentially in the original language, it says if you're serious about love. How many of you are serious about love? Okay, we, we believe love is the way. Now, 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 this week you probably all failed in loving someone, all right? But at least we're serious about loving, not just a few people, but all people. We're gonna love Democrats and Republicans. We're gonna love racists and psychopaths. We're gonna love our enemies. We're gonna love our neighbor who throws trash in our backyard. Can you get an amen to that? We're gonna love Oakland Raider fans. We're gonna love cat people. We're gonna love, we're gonna love, we're gonna love. We're gonna love those who are on the outside. We're gonna love those who are disadvantaged. We're gonna love the poor. We're gonna love, 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 we're gonna love. We're gonna love the hell out of people. We're gonna love the hell out of our city. I'm going to do more loving, 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 loving. That is the goal. That is the goal, is to love like Jesus. This world is under new management, right? And this world that's under Jesus and the Spirit runs not on hate, doesn't run on vindictiveness. It runs on love, agape love. So he says pursue. If you're serious about pursuing love, this is kind of my paraphrase, then you have to be earnest about desiring the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Spiritual gifts, if you can keep it there, media team, on, on that, um, whatever you call that screen. That's, is that what we call it? Okay, that screen. Spiritual gifts is probably a bad translation. There's kind of a con growing consensus among many scholars that spiritual gifts is a bad translation. Spiritual gifts probably should be translated spiritual things. One pastor in Portland, I like his uh, translation. Uh, spiritual gifts should be translated the stuff that the Spirit does. The reason why is because many, many of you tuned out when you said pursue love and then be earnest about desiring the spiritual gifts. You're like, okay, I don't got those gifts. Right? It almost implies that there's, there's like second class citizens in the kingdom of God. No, the better translation is if, if, you're, really, if you're really serious about loving your neighbor and your neighborhood and the people in the city and your family and your coworker, then you have to be serious. You gotta be earnest 
The word earnest in the Greek comes from this word means to boil over with passion. It's like when liquid metals are melting. That is the way you should approach the spiritual gifts. Not the spiritual gifts, the things that the Spirit does. Which, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. Which is available to all. All those who are in Christ, you have access to what Paul says, prophecy. And then he continues in verse 2. He's kind of correcting some disorder. Again, as I mentioned before, in this church. But he says in verse 2, For no one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Verse 4, But the one who speaks in a tongue, I love this, builds up himself. Could you turn to your neighbor and quietly say, build yourself up? The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. The one who prophesies builds up the church. Verse 5, now I want you to all speak in tongues. I want you all to speak in tongues. Some of you are like shaken, don't worry, right? That's probably not the Holy Spirit. I'm talking like the fear, all right? Some of you got that, some of you didn't. Uh, don't be nervous. What Paul says, hey guys, I, I want you to know that you should all speak in tongues. This is made available to you because you've been baptized in the Spirit by being in Christ. You've been baptized. Let me just say this again. Martin Luther, a, a long time ago, as I mentioned, suffered from bouts of depression and melancholy. And every time he went through those seasons of just really difficult, emotional, psychological things, you know what he would say in the Latin? He would say, baptiza tus sum. And this is a way to describe his life before God. Hey, I don't feel it, but I am baptiza tus sum. I, it was his declaration, and some of you need to declare it this week. I am baptized. If you're in Christ, you've been baptized in the Spirit, and the stuff, everyone say the stuff. Those are not my words, but the words of another scholar, pastor, but the stuff that the Spirit does is now made available to you. Not as arbitrary things, but what? Speaking in tongues in particular is given so you can, if you're taking notes, you can write this down, to build yourself up. There have been, I remember I was 19 years old. I got to land this plane. I got like two minutes. You think I can do it? I don't think I can do it. Okay, we'll try. I was 19 years old. I was trying to figure out what, what university I wanted to play college basketball at. I was really confused. And I actually didn't have this conversation with my parents. I was really depressed. And so I just, I, I made a decision. God, I, I, I just need you. I've been a Christian my whole life. I just need you to come in and do a fresh work in me. So I went up to our, our camp, Faith Heights, 19, and uh, we're at a campfire. And I remember we just kind of prayed. I prayed a simple prayer. God, I just give you my heart. Please, please do something in me. I, I put my trust in you. Uh, we had a, a man at the time. His name was Daryl Flowers. He came. He played basketball at Oregon State. He gave a word. He talked for about an hour out of Song of Solomon. And he talked about the love of God. And for three hours, for three hours, it was funny what God did totally turned my life right side up. I was in the back and I was weeping my face off. It did feel like I was face to face with God himself. The only way that I can describe it is I was having an apocalyptic moment. 
It was an apocalypse of love, and it altered the trajectory of my life. In that moment, the Holy Spirit told me to go to Boise State, and I knew that I wanted to be that long in Boise State because I knew the Holy Spirit was going to lead me into ministry. I wanted to play basketball. I did not want to be a minister or a pastor. It's too much pressure, people, right? And yet in that moment, God changed my life, and he gave me a new prayer language. And I'm... Prayer language is, it, 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 it did something to my spirit. And I begin to practice building myself up. And every time when I'm exhausted and tired and worn out, and the kids are screaming, and the whole family's sick, and I'm trying to make decisions about where we're going as a church, I'm trying to hear God, there are some times where I do not have words to express the depth of just hunger and passion and sometimes exhaustion in me. And it's in those times that I make a decision to pray in my prayer language. And when I do, it is amazing. My mind's unfruitful. I have no idea what I'm, I'm praying. And I don't do it in public. But in private, I'm with Jesus. And please don't get freaked out. Like someone, oh my God, the pastor speaks in tongues. Please don't leave the church, all right? But it's in those times where I find the greatest strength and courage and boldness. When I'm afraid, I receive courage to be who God's called me to be. It's not in my own strength that I can get up here and lead and it's not in my own strength that I can talk about a big vision of being a regional church and planning 10 campuses. No, it takes courage. And it's through the power of the Holy Spirit at work in me and at work in your life that we will, we will not just achieve, it's not about achievement, but we will see over the next 10 years thousands of people coming to Jesus and practicing the way of Jesus because we made a decision to let our lives be filled up with God's presence. Now I want you to uh, know that I want you to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. And I think in verse 12, Paul then gets the cat out of the bag. He says, guys, I, I pray in, in my prayer language more than you all, right? It just love Paul. He just loves to up, upstage everybody. And then he goes, actually, it's verse 18, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than you all. And then we land kind of the end of this chapter, verse 26. Are you guys still with me? I'm almost done. What then, brothers? Rhetorically, he says, when you come together, each one has a hymn, has a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. You want your life to be marked by the empowering presence of God? Open your heart to the stuff that the Spirit does. Open your heart. You might be scared, I get that, but open your heart to um, the possibility of God giving you a prayer language. Because it's when I'm weak, when you're weak, God gives us a language, Romans 8 says, groanings without words that flow through us in praise and prayer back to God. 
where God transforms us and builds us up. The word build up is a, a, a word straight out of the construction uh, linguistic world, and it just simply means to encourage, to give strength. If you want to be built up, I would just gently suggest, ask God this week for your prayer language. So let me just end here. What Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, he's making um, a distinction between uh, the private and public use of speaking in tongues. I'm not going to talk about the public use. I'm simply going to talk about the private use. The private use, Paul is saying, hey guys, when you come to church, don't just, we believe in order. How many of you believe in order, right? We believe in order. We don't believe in crazy. Um, so when you come to church, don't be disruptive. Don't make it about you. Stop it, right? Um, think about other people. Don't even think about other people. First, think about God, right? And because God is not the author of confusion, he's the author of peace. So Paul is laying a framework on how to use your prayer language. I don't come here on Sunday, I think Pastor Ken mentioned this this morning, and get up on the stage and for one hour speak in my prayer language. Like we would have no church over the next, you know, we, we would lose the church, right? You guys, hopefully we want it but I certainly wouldn't do that on a Sunday because my prayer language is for private use. Uh, for, for example, I was um, at the co-op, and you just never know what happens at the co-op downtown. I live down there. I love it. Can I get any man? I love it down there. Uh, but I was having a conversation with someone, and we were talking about a lot of different like stuff. Scott, you would have loved this conversation. I was thinking about you the whole time. And uh, my buddy that I was talking to, his name's Chris, he didn't realize that, but r literally right next to us, a man came in, wonderful gentleman, probably the biggest man I've ever seen, about six foot five, was just like, he was just like, it's like straight out of the mountains, a beautiful beard. It was just like, man, this guy's pretty cool. In front of us, and Chris didn't see, but I saw it, he starts taking off his shoes, and then he takes off, and big shoes, and he takes off his socks, and he had massive feet and he starts to give himself a pedicure, right? Is that what you call it? He starts messing with his feet in front of us, and I'm like, oh my God, those are amazing feet, but those are feet. <laughs> and I'm eating chicken, and I couldn't get feet out of my mind because I'm eating anyways. All right. How many of you would say that's an inappropriate, an inappropriate way to take care of your feet? Well, this is what Paul is saying. Hey, guys, guys. Right? We don't come and in front of everybody, we just go crazy and we just speak in tongues and we roar like lions or whatever. If you want to do that at your house, you can certainly do that. Like some of you, please sing. We all believe in singing. Can I get an amen? I also believe that some of you need to sing a little bit lower. Okay. Like, and I apply that to myself. Like if you, if you go home, sing like you want to sing, but some of us like, ah, you know, uh, we might not be as gifted. You can sing, honestly, I love it. I love you guys. But sometimes there's a, there's a difference between a private use of, of a gift and a public use. So what I'm not saying is if you get your prayer language this week, you should go to a store and just let everyone know. Right? The purpose of your prayer language is to build you up. So, this is where I'm, I'm done. You guys are amazing. So how, how, how do we apply this? Well, I think this is what we should do. Um, usually, you know, in some charismatic churches, they like gather people up in the front and they lay hands and, you know, things can go um, a lot of different directions. Um, I recommend this week, take this week, if you don't have a prayer language, 
uh, get away from the world, shut out the world, uh, find a room, uh, a place that's, that has a, a, a semblance of solitude, and open your heart to Jesus and ask him for your prayer language. The stuff the Spirit does. I want you to be baptized in the power of God. I want your life to be marked out by God's empowering presence. So this, some people feel pressure when we talk about speaking in tongues. I'm, I'm, I'm lifting the pressure. My one thing that I would like you to do is this week, go find a private place and ask God for your prayer language. And I'm gonna believe that God is going to fill you even more with his empowering presence this week. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message from Capital Christian. We hope you will stay connected by following us online. To find out more information, visit us at capitalchristian.com.